Okay, today is March the 20th, 2012, and we'll prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stability, the security, and the assurance that we have knowing that we are your children. Knowing that this brief time we have on this planet is passing and that we need to make the most of it. That we don't have to fear what comes next because of your mighty word, because of the Holy Spirit. You have informed us of things that we can look forward to and have a personal sense of eternal destiny. We pray for uh, the Sessler family that you will help them in uh, whatever doctrine they may have may uh, be a, an anchor for them in this, in this hard time and that you will help them to uh, get through this very difficult time. And we pray that you will help us this evening to focus and concentrate for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I have a, got an email today from Amir Shlomo, the Consulate General of Israel in the uh, south, uh, southwest area of the United States. Um, he's just bringing up some information about the shooting that went on in France. He said in, in Monday's shooting at Ozar Hadera, a shooter first gunned down a rabbi and his four-year-old and five-year-old sons. He then proceeded to chase down the seven-year-old daughter of the school director, shooting her point-blank. This horrific display of violence has shocked the world, bringing thousands of people together in mourning. Uh, This is something that, unfortunately, is all too common. We see this all the time. Of course... This is just another act of anti-Semitism. This is one that made the headlines, but I wonder how many acts of anti-Semitism took place this very day and how many Jews lost their lives because of those who have an embittered hatred, hatefulness towards the Jews. Uh, by the name uh, of this uh, gunman, it sounds to me like... Um, he, he was probably Arab, probably um, uh, Muslim. And it makes me remember what Dave Hunt said when he was on a radio broadcast and they were discussing um, the uh, Islam, fanatical Islam. And he's, the first thing he said while he was being interviewed on this by this radio uh, broadcaster was he um, objected to the term the uh, fanatical what, what's the other term they use for it radical yeah radical Islam he said this is not radical Islam this is fundamental Islam these are fundamentalists not radical they're only uh, functioning as the Quran ex- instructs them to function so we live in a very violent world we need to 
be thankful to God for every day that we have. One other thing I wanted to, to uh, touch on before um, we get into our uh, lesson. And here is another headline that I saw today. I hadn't had these up. I had one up? Okay. This one here. Uh, H.R. 347, free speech protecting, uh, free speech protesting is now a felony punished by jail. Have any of you heard this on the mainstream media? No. Fox News? Okay. Um, I, I, I researched some of this on the uh, Internet. Last week, I'm reading uh, this. It says, uh, last week, President Obama signed into law the Federal Restricted Building and Grounds Improvement Act of 2011. It's known as H.R. 347. This law permits Secret Service agents to designate any place they wish as a place where free speech uh, association and petition of uh, government are prohibited. And it permits the Secret Service to make these de determinations based on the content of speech. H.R. 347 passed with overwhelming support. Only three House members voted against it. It was uh, Paul Brown of Georgia, Justin Amash of uh, Michigan, and Ron Paul of Texas. Uh, that uh, doesn't bode very well for our Congress. Uh, some had hopes that after the last election, things would be different. Anyway, um, this is something that you won't see on the, on the uh, main news. They vary these type of things. What's the biblical perspective on this? Remember I talked to you Sunday a little bit about uh, these type of things. Certainly, I, I gave you three examples of Elijah and John the Baptist and Paul. John the Baptist certainly uh, exercised his freedom of speech when he went to King Herod and said, it is wrong for you to be, uh, we would say, sleeping with your brother's wife. And he did not, uh, God did not condemn him for this. Uh, he did lose his head over it. But that's always when you stand up for right you're going to usually be in the minority and you're always going to, there's risk involved. But I'm trying to give you the biblical perspective on something just, it seems like every week another one of these things comes along. And what I want us to do, we can't be responsible for everyone else, but what we can do is be independent thinkers and think critically of things that happen, contemporary issues, and look at them through a biblical perspective. That's what we are called on to do, and that's what I'm going to try to help you to do because that's the, the, the highest authority that we have is God, and this is his word. So we see everything through the eyes of the Bible, everything. And that's what we're called on to do, and that's what we're going to do. So let's look at the Bible tonight. If you'll turn in your... Uh, Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. We're just going to nearly speed read through this because we've been over it, but I do want to touch on it again. 
The next scripture that we're going to go to tonight, it's not on the notes, but I know what the next scripture after the ones on the notes is. And it's talking about Paul is not apologetic for repeating. He's told, he says, I know you know this and I'm telling you again. So I think Paul is a pretty good, uh, I guess you would say, example for people who communicate, especially who communicate the Word of God. So I'm going to just take that example and use it tonight with regards to at least quick repetition. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. This verse, or this verses 1 through 4, are used to try to, well, let me put it this way, they're misused, thinking that you can either lose your salvation or doubt your salvation by things that you do. And that's a shame because uh, we know that we are sinful creatures and we cannot judge our eternal destiny by our behavior. Did you hear that? And you're going to be assailed if you take that position, but I assure you it's the right position. The book that I wrote in there called Can You Tell? I've got a little grief here and there from people because they just don't believe. They, they, they measure whether a person is saved or not by their behavior. And I'm saying that is not an accurate measuring stick. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. This is talking about from legalism, but I think that we have a God that is very interested in freedom and it goes beyond just legalism into being able to be free to make decisions apart from uh, tyranny and, and those that would uh, pressure us to uh, where we cannot be free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if, third class condition, this is only a potential, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I explained in detail that the circumstances at that time was there were Jews who would say, yes, you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, but that's not enough. You also have to be circumcised. They were bringing the Mosaic law into the equation, and Paul would not have it. He says, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under the obligation to keep the entire law. And all he was doing was referencing James chapter 2, verse 10, which says that if you fall short in one point of the Mosaic law, then you're guilty of the whole thing. In other words, you would have to be perfect. That was one of the reasons that God gave the Mosaic law to the Jews was to demonstrate you cannot keep it. You need a Savior. And yet what the Pharisees and Sadducees and many of the scribes did was take that and use the Mosaic Law as a legalistic way of being accepted by God. They said you had to keep the law in order to be saved. Okay, yes, you have to believe in Christ, but now you also have to keep the law, and he's saying it's no way. Then for those who would go ahead and do this anyway, and I'm show, I've, I've de I'm demonstrated to you that he is talking to believers here, confused believers, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now remember, you can't fall from grace unless what? 
you're already in grace. Unless grace was already, you understood grace, you were in the bounds of grace, then you fall out. And I made a, the, the point that, of course, part of our eternal security is understanding that what God has given us, He does not take back, especially with regards to eternal life and His own righteousness. Romans 11:29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And you were saved by grace. You received eternal life, which was a what? A gift. And this says that the gifts of God are irrevocable. He does not take them back. Now, what happened if they did undergo circumcision in order to try to fulfill the Mosaic Law? They would return to a yoke of slavery and legalism. It doesn't say that they're going to fry in hell. It's showing that they're... And that's one of the worst punishments, by the way, you can do is to get disoriented with regards to grace and fall back into legalism. I have seen that happen to believers, well-meaning believers, but they made bad decisions and they fell back into thinking that they had to do things in order to be approved by God and, and it was all on them. They, didn't, they, they lost their contact of grace. I'll give you one quick illustration. One time I had a man come to me and he was growing in grace. It was, it was great. And he said, I want to be honest with you. He said, I hate the prison ministry that I'm in. Uh, his, he was not going to this church full time. And his other church had a, a prison ministry. And he was involved in it. And he confided in me. And he said, you know, I just, I just hate to go. Am, am I wrong? And, and, uh, and should, I, should I go anyway? What do you think my answer was? Absolutely not. I mean, he was doing something against his will. That was, that was not his area of ministry. His spiritual gift didn't have anything to do with that, and yet he was forcing himself to do it. And so I said, the last thing you want to do is force yourself to do something for God like that. You need to find out how God wants to use you and get with it. Not, there's a lot of other ways to serve God rather than going to a prison ministry. And so he quit going to that uh, prison ministry. I know he was so happy. Not that long after that, I didn't see him anymore. And what happened was uh, his wife liked to sing in the choir. We didn't have a choir, so he wound up back at the church he had come from. And then I also heard that he was back in the prison ministry. And I thought, that's what this is talking about right here, see? He, he, he put back on the yoke of slavery of legalism. And I don't even have, I didn't have to, I, I, I didn't, don't try to guess who this is because you don't know him. They're not even around here anymore. That's not the point. The point is, I knew, no one had to ask me, what do you think how he's doing? Well, I thought, well he's doing horrible. He put the yoke of slavery back on. He feels guilty if he doesn't do a ministry that he's really not into. And so that's one of the things we need to remember. If you have to force yourself to serve God, either you have a problem spiritually or you're trying to minister in the wrong way. One or the other. And we have some... The point here is, another point, is that 
believers can fall short of the grace of God. We all do it from time to time. Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That means the same as falling from grace, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, or by it many are defiled. So if you want to come short of the grace of God and get into bitterness, are you going to hell? No, it means that there are going to be, people are going to be defiled when you get bitter. You're already defiled when you're bitter. But what's going to happen is that bitterness is going to, I was going to say spill over, but maybe I should say spew over to other people. There's enough poison and venom in the air to, you know. So it's not falling short of the grace of God, coming short of it doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means you're going to be, you're going to be defiled and others as well. Second Peter 3.17 Be on guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Falling from your own steadfastness is the same as falling from grace. In other words, these unprincipled men carry you away into error. And they could call, carry you away. There are some people who would tempt you to get into lasciviousness. There are some who would tempt you to get into legalism. This is the ditch on each side. We have to stay straight ahead with doctrine and not let these things distract us. First Timothy 6, 9, and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many a foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and, ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by, love, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a grief. Are believers guilty of this? Absolutely. Did they lose their salvation for it? No. Does it prove that they really weren't saved to begin with? No. But what happens is, this says that they pierced themselves with many griefs because they bought Satan's lie. You want to be happy? What do you need? Cash or gold or whatever it is. To be severed from Christ means that they were not to be severed from the sanctifying effects of a relationship with Him, but not from a saving relationship with Him. They were to be severed from the sanctifying... You know what sanctifying effects means? The experiential relationship can be severed, but not from uh, their positional relationship with Him. Uh, let's see. Here's a quote from Reign of the Servant Kings. Two different ways of living the Christian life are being contrasted in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is not contrasting believers and unbelievers. It's contrasting two types of believers. This would be a good time to write a little margin note there. You know, this not believers and unbelievers. That's not what it's contrasting. That's all you need to know about that. It's not contrasting... Believers and unbelievers is contrasting two types of believers. It's not contrasting two different eternal states. What, what was Paul contrasting? Grace and law. Therefore, to fall from grace is to fall into law, not to fall into damnation. If you can rightly divide... This verse, 
if you are able to articulate this to others, you are in the top tier, as what they're saying now about the political candidates. You are in the top tier of believers. But don't get the big head. Now, one question that many would, maybe even you have a hard time with, is this last part of this verse. Verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And I asked you last time, what kind of righteousness is that talking about? Is that talking about the righteousness you acquire when you believe in Jesus Christ according to Romans 4 or 5? Do we need to say it? No. <laughs> to the one who does not work but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, His what? Faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Is that the kind of righteousness that it's talking about here? No. How do we know that? Well, first of all, you don't hope for something that you already have, do you? And nothing in this is salvific. Why would he switch all of a sudden and say that we're hoping for righteousness, which we already have because we have it from the moment of salvation? wouldn't be salvific. What he's hoping for is to be experientially sanctified. Got that? This whole thing has to do with believers who can get it wrong. They were getting it wrong, some of them. Some of the Galatians bought the lie that they need to start dabbling into the Mosaic Law and doing things in order to uh, be saved. And he said, no. If you do that, you've been severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. I don't know what your teenage years was like with your parents but maybe you can identify with being severed from your father or maybe your mother because you had fallen from grace. Did that ever happen? <laughs> oh, y'all are a pious bunch. If that happened, did that mean you were no longer their child? You know what? Nothing can change that. I have to admit, there was a few times I had times I had fallen from grace. Probably less times than you might imagine. But there was times that I had fallen from grace. And I guess you could say that I was severed from severed from a, a, a cordial relationship. <laughs> okay, well, I hope you get the point. These aren't really that hard if you just slow down and look at what they're saying. Okay, here's the new... This is where we're starting to plow new ground tonight, and this is really going to be a great verse for us to understand what we're trying to get across. Why are we going through these verses? Because I want you to look at these verses that people would say are salvific. They would say you can... This is, a, this is proof that you can lose your salvation. This is a proof to show whether you are truly saved or not. All that is salvific. And these verses that we are going to are not salvific. I hope you know what I'm talking about when I say salvific. They don't have anything to do with your eternal salvation. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1 because there's a few verses that I don't have on the board and you have to see the whole context 
by the time, any, by the way, anytime somebody has a, a verse that is in question, just don't go to the verse. Go to the verses before it. Go to the verses after it. See what the context is. Apart from that, no one can know. Second Peter's way back there towards the back. Okay, Second Peter chapter one. Let's just start. Let's just start with verse two. Okay? Verse one is 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 somewhat of a typical greeting. Verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the in the experience of God and Jesus our Lord. It's not experience there. Knowledge. It, that that Greek word there is epignosis knowledge. This isn't gnosis knowledge, just something that's understood, but full knowledge, which means you comprehend it, you believe it, and you've assimilated it, now it's part of you. Grace and peace be added to you? No, multiplied. Isn't it great that grace can be multiplied? But how is it multiplied? What does it say? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You know, you can have grace. The grace is available there, but it's never going to be multiplied if you remain a mediocre, dumb-butt believer. And I've cleaned that up. Verse 3. Seeing that His divine power... Remember I used this Sunday as well? What a great verse. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through true experience... No through true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. I want you to underline that. Knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory. We're going to use that in a minute. Verse 4. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And we're not to our verses that I'm really getting to yet, but I have to say a few things about this. I'm sorry I have spaghetti on my glasses or something. Bother me. Um, he has granted His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might, underline might, that you might become partakers of the divine nature. Might is a subjunctive verb there. It means it's only a potential. You know why that's important? Because a lot of people think when you believe in Jesus Christ, you automatically acquire a divine nature. This, this term here is only used three other times in the Bible 
and it's referring to deity. And this is saying that we, it's not saying that we might acquire deity, but it's saying that we might acquire or we might become partakers of the divine nature. Partaker means uh, we can't be deity, but we can take on some of the attributes of deity in a very, very lower form. Even in God's essence, you know, God, God is uh, omniscient. Well, we're not omniscient, but we, we can know things, can't we? I mean, we can remember things, and, well, as you get older, it gets harder to do. But, uh, you know, that, that's kind of like a part of his essence. We can love like God loves, I mean, in a, in a small way, the way that God loves. And we have power, don't we? We have a certain amount of power, but it's very limited. And so what this is saying, what I'm trying to help you understand, is that this is saying that we might become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we can be conformed to the image of God's Son, which is one reason that we're still on earth. God is training us. We're never going to become exactly like the image of God's Son, but we can take on a, that kind of nature. Do you understand that? But it, look at this. It's only a potential Certain things have to happen for you to take on that nature, that divine nature. Having escaped the, escaped the corruptions that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, also apply, applying all diligence. You might underline that word. It's one of my favorite words. You know, the verb form of this is spudanzo, but this is a noun, so it's spudo. Not speedo, spudo. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. See, talking about applying diligence in your faith. If you're applying diligence in your faith, then you, you, you're going to be supplying moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, <coughs> excuse me, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And that brings us up to what you see on the board. That's seven characteristics that if you are add diligence to your faith, these things are going to be developed in you. But it's only a potential and let me tell you, if you have all these things, all these cylinders firing, then you are going to be a partaker of the divine nature, but it's only a potential. What has to happen? You have to add diligence to your faith. What do you think adding diligence to your faith has to do with? How many times have we read knowledge already in here? I'm talking about learning doctrine. Now you can look up here for verse 8. For if these things, that's the, the things listed in verses 5 through 7, I think it's seven characteristics there. For if these qualities that we're, we just saw are yours, and look at this, and are increasing, you don't, he's saying not only do you have to have these already there, these characteristics have to become stronger, they're increasing. 
they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Who's he talking to? Believers. And if he says, if you have all these qualities and they're increasing, then they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful. What does that mean? If you don't have these qualities, what might you wind up being? Useless and unfruitful, right? For believers. See? But then he adds to this, neither useless or unfruitful, what? In the true knowledge. There we have that word again. That pesky for some word. You know, I was I, I looked in my notes today of Second Peter. I wish I'd have put him up here because I was showing you a contrast between the New American Standard Version of these verses and the Message, so-called Bible interpretation or guess. And <clears throat> they didn't have word knowledge. Uh, it was all experience and all. Anyway, true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have these qualities, these characteristics, and they're increasing, then you're not going to be useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior or in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it appears to me that if you don't have those characteristics, then you can have a, have a knowledge and it's still going to be useless and unfruitful. Why? Because it has to be true knowledge. In other words, we were just in Galatians. If someone is trying to say that you can produce these seven characteristics by gritting your teeth, and if you do this, then it's going to make you uh, fruitful and useful. Is that true knowledge? No. True knowledge is the whole realm of doctrine, including the grace orientation. It's all, the only way that you can acquire those seven characteristics is two things have to happen. Of course, you have to be a believer. The Holy Spirit is going to, put, is going to develop them in you. But there's still one thing missing that I was just talking about a minute ago. you all remember what it was? Right. You said it. You have to add diligence to your faith. Those are, you've got to, it's like a, a recipe. You've got to have all the ingredients. And uh, I've tasted some really good carrot cake, but I've never tasted carrot cake like Mimi makes. I don't know what her ingredients are, but she puts it, she's got all the ingredients in there. And that's the same thing here. You have to have these seven characteristics. They have to be increasing. And it has to come from the Holy Spirit. And you have to have what else? You have to add diligence to your faith. What do you think of when you hear diligence? I mean, not the word spudazo. Diligence is associated with what? Huh? Work, right, work. There's work involved. I don't know, but didn't you have to work to get here? Hmm? You didn't just snap your fingers and have your butler come and carry you out 
get, put it in your limousine and have a chauffeur drive you here, did he? Did you have all the the maids and coachmen and, you know, I, I'm thinking about this show. I've been watching um, Dalton Abbey. It's tremendous. I highly recommend it if you haven't heard of that. It's a series. And these people didn't even dress themselves. I'm talking about the, the super rich. They, what do they call the uh, people that dress them? Valets? Yeah, you know. Uh, they would just stand there and they would get the clothes, they would put them on them, and they would dress it all up like this and they would go and people would open the door for them, they'd walk out, they'd haul them in the coats, they'd take them where they're going. I mean, it takes work just to get here, doesn't it? And that's part of adding diligence to your faith. For he... He's talking to believers here who lacks these qualities, those seven things, is blind or short-sighted, having forgot his purification from his former sins. So according to these two verses, a believer can be useless and unfruitful. And if he lacks these qualities, he's blind and short-sighted. Right? He's not a partaker of the divine nature. He didn't add diligence to his faith. If a believer does not possess moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godly, godliness, brother, brotherly kindness, and love that comes from adding diligence to faith, he can become useless and unfruitful. The believer who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted. And remember, these qualities are only acquired by what? Adding diligence to your faith. Here's verse 6 again. Applying all diligence, spude, excuse me, in your face, applying moral excellence and then the rest of the things. Then verse 10 and 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, see, when you get that therefore, understanding what we, we just read, these verses, leading up to that, therefore, now he's going to make a point. Who's he talking to? What does it say? Brethren. Therefore, brethren, be all the more what? Diligent. Now we have that old friend, Spudazzo. Be all the more diligent, aorist active imperative, that is a command, to make certain, certain, babaios means something that can be relied on not to cause disappointment. In other words, and, and by the way, uh, that's an adjective. It sounds like a verb, doesn't it? To make certain. It would be better translated, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, certain about something. You see? Certain is an adjective as opposed to uncertain. About his calling, about his uh, calling and choosing you. And we saw already in verse 3, remember, He who called us by or to his own glory and excellence. Remember what I said we were going to get to that in verse 3? For as long as you practice these things, those seven things that we we're looking at, you will never, what? Stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now let's look at some points here. What happens to believers who don't add diligence to their faith? Number one. They don't acquire the character traits that are listed, those seven. Two, they are useless. Three, 
they are unfruitful. Four, they are short-sighted. Five, they are blind. Six, they do not become partakers of the divine nature according to verse 3. Remember I said that is only a potential? Number seven, they stumble. Number eight, their interest into the kingdom will not be abundantly supplied. In other words, they will enter into the kingdom, but it won't be noticed. It won't be any big deal. Can you imagine when Paul left this veil of tears and went into glory? I imagine there was, that was, it was quite a moment. Do you see anything on this list about hell? Do you see anything in here that would indicate that their eternal security is in jeopardy? No. These are the things that could happen if they don't make certain about their calling and choosing. Now, this is the thing that we... Here's where we're going to zero in on the few minutes we have left. Be all the, all the more diligent to make certain or sometimes they say make your call and election sure. That might be your translation. Or here it says to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Now, this is what a lot of people say. I, I have to tell you, I was kind of tested today. My patience was just about gone. I've, I've got some quotes here from theological journals. PhDs, eggheads, people who are, you know, have all the credentials, and they don't get it. So let's let's focus. What I'm going to show you is what what makes certain about his calling and choosing does not mean. Do we have to go around all the time biting our nails? Oh, I wonder if I was really called. I wonder if I'm one of the elect. Oh, no. Here's, here's one of the quotes here. In urging his readers to make certain about his calling and choosing you, Peter is not merely urging them to engage in more strenuous activities on their part. He rather is concerned about their personal assurance that they are called and chosen of God. Now, this guy is talking about in a personal sense. In other words, they better be worried about their eternal salvation is what he's saying. To make certain indicates that their personal assurance of being called and chosen must be based on the appropriate evidence in their own lives. Believers' robust spiritual growth confirms that God has called and chosen them. The blighted condition pictured in verse 9 destroys such assurance. Election comes from God alone, but man's behavior is the proof or disproof of it. Where's the grace in that? He's saying you can tell by their behavior. Here's another one. The assurance of the reality of faith comes with its product. One of the signs of eternal life is that its faith has a product, its continuance. In other words, you have to continue to have this faith, see? When faith is real, it produces results and it abides. Really? Has there ever been a time in your life where you had some doubts? 
This does not deny sin, carnality, or the back, black, backslidden person as demonstrated in Scripture, but it does maintain that real faith brings salvation and that this salvation produces results which confirm and complete that faith. I'm not going to read. All of these are from uh, the uh, Bibliotheca Sacra. That's a, uh, the journals from Dallas. This is from, these are from journals from Dallas Theological Seminary. All of these. Here's another one. Assurance is something a believer must gather by deduction from the change that he sees in his life. Salvation is promised in the Bible to those who believe. The only way, however, a person can know whether he has truly believed is by seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in his life. Therefore, the nature of this fruit is an important issue if the believer is to know that he has eternal life. Among the Puritans, whole volumes were written to teach how a person must have assurance of salvation and to contrast false presumption with true assurance. So where are they looking to get this assurance? Look at this. Therefore, the nature of this fruit is an important issue. I'm reading in the middle there. If the believer is to know if he has eternal life. Is that how you know you have eternal life? By the fruit you're producing? Yeah, I, this is the last one. I just couldn't stand it. I mean, I, was, I, I just went to one or another. Listen to this one. How could Peter's audience make their calling and election by God, sure. In the same way James's audience could, by examining the fruit of their lives that would either vindicate them as true believers or condemn them as professing hypocrites. So he's also including James in this, the whole idea of James that we spend all that time on by looking at your behavior. And they missed the whole point. Finally, we get one, and it might come from a peculiar place to some of you maybe, but Martin Luther got it right. Look at Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote that saving faith is the sort of faith that does not look at its own works nor at its own strength and worthiness, noting, that, uh, noting what sort of quality or new created or infused virtue it may be, According to Luther, it comes from relying on the promises of God's mercy in the gospel and not from any sense of, in, of internal change. For certainly does not, for certainty does not come from any sense of internal change, oh, excuse, from any kind of re, uh, reflection on myself and on my state. On the contrary... It comes solely through hearing the Word, solely because and insofar as I cling to the Word of God and its promises. Ah, all right, finally, someone gets it right. The only reason that we can stand and tell others with absolute dogmatism, the only reason we don't have to fret in the middle of the night and wonder, oh, I wonder if I'm going to heaven or not, when, we, when you embarrass yourselves, when you feel guilty and ashamed for things that you have done or maybe should be ashamed and feel guilty about it, whenever that happens, there is no reason for that anchor, that stability 
of your eternal security to be in jeopardy in, in the slightest. Why? Because it all depends on the Word, upon His promises. And what do we know for certain? What is the bedrock foundation of the Christian faith? We call it faith alone in Christ alone. That's what salvation is all about. Because the Bible says if you have faith, no quantifiers, not a lot of faith or, or, or abundance of faith, nothing about quality, quantity or anything. If you have faith of the mustard seed in Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It means that you, you are the possessor of eternal life. You are the possessor of God's own righteousness. We don't ever look at, we don't even look at our faith. I don't even know when I was saved. Listen, if I had to go back and they say, uh, well, you need to look at your faith and make sure it was the right kind. I mean, you know, if, if you don't have enough fruit being produced, if these things aren't in you, that these seven qualities, and they're not going, well, you, you know, you, you, could be, uh, you could be shortchanged there. Well, I would be in big-time trouble because I don't have a clue when I was saved. I walked the aisle till it was wore out. Maybe one of those times it took. Maybe the first time, the second time, the 15th time. I don't know what time it was. You don't have to know that. And I've had people ask me, I want, we want to hear your, you're a pastor, we want to hear your testimony. I said, no, you don't. My testimony is I don't know when I was saved. How about that? Huh? But I know it now. How do I know? Based on my experience? Based on when I know that I was saved? I don't even know when it was. I know that I'm saved because the Bible says if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm trusting in Him and in Him alone, I have eternal life. That's why I can say it with assurance. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Christ giving me a gift that I accepted simply through faith. So I think we're going to end here on this, um, on this high note of Martin Luther after all of that garbage that we heard. Listen, I weighed through these journals. I, I picked the, the best that illustrate the points. How long did it take to go through these few uh, little excerpts from these articles? What, ten minutes, five minutes? You know how many hours that I searched to get these to you? And how many things that I just nearly wanted to gag? I, I, I find it today, I said... I could have given you ten more that were saying the same thing. These are theologians and pastors are doing the same thing. They miss it. They're not even grace-oriented. They go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 and say, you can be severed from Christ. You can fall from grace. You can lose your salvation. They, own, they do not have the keys that you have. At least I hope you haven't. I've been hammering on it to tell what is salvific and what is experiential. And when you are grace-oriented, it shouldn't be that hard. You can look at the verses. By the way, what happens if they... Let me get back up to this verse. Uh, this is the one. Uh, make, sure you're, uh, make certain about your calling and your choosing or your election. What happens if you don't do this? It says you're going to stumble. Where's the... Where's the fire of, the, of hell in here. They're going to stumble. And if they stumble, what, what, what happens? They're not going to have a grand entrance into the kingdom. Does it, going to be, does it say that 
you will never stumble if you practice these things. For in this way, if you, if you, never, what, what if you do stumble? If you do stumble, does it say that you're, you're not going to enter the kingdom? No, it says your entrance into the kingdom, in this way the entrance of the kingdom of our Lord and Sa- uh, Savior Christ Jesus will be abundantly supplied. Well, if you stumble, what happens? It's going to be a supply, but it's not going to be abundantly supplied. A lot of people on earth want to be famous. They want to make a big splash. See, transit Gloria Mundi. The glory of this world is passing away. This generation don't, don't even know who Joe Namath was. Some of them don't even know who Elvis Presley was. If you want to be a big, make a big splash, this is the way to do it here. And when you get to heaven, your entrance will be abundantly supply so we're out of time let's close father thank you for this time that we can focus on your word and see that our anchor our security is in your veracity in your word it's impossible for you to lie so we don't have to worry about if we don't have these seven characteristics in us and developing we have that opportunity for sure because of the Holy Spirit, because of your grace. But if they're not, we don't have to fret and wonder if we're truly saved. We don't have to worry that we're going to fall from grace and lose our salvation. We're so thankful that your plan incorporates everything depending upon who and what you are and not who and what we are. We call that grace and we're so thankful for it. We pray that you will help us to go through these scriptures and be able to discern the positional from the experiential. And so maybe we can even impart that to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.